In the late 1800s, an Englishwoman named Catherine O'Shea and an Irish politician named Charles Stuart Parnell fell deeply in love. The only problem was that Catherine was already married to someone else. This episode of Footnoting History examines their story. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you, as you know I love to do, about a scandal. If you're already familiar with this topic, it's possible that, like me, you were taught that the main players' names were Kitty and William O'Shea, spelled O-apostrophe-S-H-E-A, and Charles Stuart Parnell. However, Kitty's real name was Catherine, and in her real life, she was only called Catherine, Katie, or terms of endearment unattached to her birth name. Kitty was attributed to her in the press once the scandal broke by someone who didn't like her, but was never something she answered to. Her husband William disliked the pronunciation of O'Shea and personally said O'Shea. And further, in her memoir, Catherine sighed at all the people who said Parnell over Parnell, as Charles said Parnell. As someone whose own surname is regularly mangled and mispronounced, Throughout this episode, I will be going with Catherine and William O'Shea and Charles Stuart Parnell out of respect for their preferences. Our story takes place mostly in the 1880s and 1890s, when Ireland was still entirely under British control and had been for many centuries. By this time, large swaths of Irish people were beyond ready to have a say in how they were governed instead of taking their orders from the seat of British Parliament in England. The term associated with this movement for self-governance was home rule. Home rulers wanted a parliament in Ireland dealing with specifically Irish issues, as opposed to the current setup that began in the early 1800s, where Irish members of parliament, MPs for short, had to go to parliament in England with English, Welsh, and Scottish MPs. They were currently trying to convince the British government to grant their wish. This political setup is very important because not only is it a good way to know the temperature of Ireland and Britain's relations at the time, but it's also 100% related to the scandal, because without it, Catherine O'Shea and her husband William might never have crossed paths with home rule heavyweight Charles Stuart Parnell. Now, let's meet our key players, and if you're interested at looking at them while you listen, Hop over to footnotinghistory.com because I put images of all three in the post for this episode. Catherine O'Shea was born Catherine Wood in Essex, England on January 30, 1845. She was the youngest daughter of Sir John Wood, a chaplain who once worked in the service of the Crown, and his wife Emma, a novelist and artist. Catherine grew up at Rivenhall Place, where she was exposed to culture like music and arts through her family and their friends. According to Catherine, the first grown-up book she ever owned, Vanity Fair, was given to her by a friend of one of her brothers. Catherine got something else thanks to her older siblings, too, her husband. In January of 1867, only a few days before her 22nd birthday, she married William O'Shea, a former captain in the British Army. Catherine had developed a relationship with William after her brother Frank invited William to ride a horse in the Brentwood steeplechase, where he interacted with her family. Theirs was a slow courtship, stretching out for several years before they tied the knot. But Catherine had originally been taken by the handsome, somewhat vain William, who once gave her a King Charles Spaniel that she absolutely adored. 
William was about five years Catherine Sr., born in 1840 in Ireland. He had one sibling, a sister named Mary, and his parents were Henry, a successful solicitor, and Catherine. William was indulged a great deal by his father, who sent him to England as a child for his education. Eventually, William returned to Ireland, where he tried his hand at both Trinity and University College in Dublin, before his father bought him a commission in the army. He served in the army until around the time he married Catherine. The couple spent their early married life in Madrid, where William worked with relatives involved in banking, but they returned to England after only about a year. As time marched on, Catherine gave birth to three children, a son named Gerard, followed by two daughters, Nora and Carmen. She also became the primary companion to her elderly aunt, a very wealthy widow who was affectionately known as Aunt Ben. My favorite story about Aunt Ben is that one day she and Catherine were out for a ride when Aunt Ben noticed her staff touching their hats as a mark of respect to a woman that they passed. When she learned that the woman was Eugenie, the exiled former empress of France and wife of Napoleon III, she told them that they must never do that again. She was an old-school legitimist who only believed that the relatives of Louis XVI should be allowed to rule France. She had no time for Bonaparte taking up residence in her country. While Catherine was spending time with her children and Aunt Ben, William was regularly on the move, loving London over the countryside. He tried to breed racehorses, but that failed. He went through bankruptcy, and then he spent over a year back in Spain attempting to get a mining venture off the ground, but that didn't go well either. Over the next 20 years, Aunt Ben had to reach into her coffers to pull William out of financial difficulties multiple times due to his severe lack of business prowess and love of gambling, which is a lethal combination. The Oshis grew accustomed to spending most of their time apart, and noticed that their temperaments were not a great match even when they were together. Just one example of this would be Catherine's complaint that she liked big social gatherings, but William would always talk her into going, only then he would fail to meet her at them, so she was often left alone trying to explain where he was and giving excuses for him, and ended up really angry about it as a result. Eventually, William decided that his best chance at a career would be to enter politics. In 1880, William managed to get elected to represent Western Ireland's County Clare as an MP supporting Home Rule, despite a lack of personal conviction for the cause. William then aimed to circulate among the biggest names in Irish politics, and at that moment, there was no Irish name more on the upswing than Charles Stuart Parnell. Charles was born in Ireland's County Wicklow on June 27, 1846, and was the seventh of 11 children. His mother, Delia, hailed from New Jersey, yes, that's right, in the USA, and his father, John Henry, is interesting because he was the first Parnell in several generations to not become an MP, though he was High Sheriff for County Wicklow. Much like his father, Charles didn't show an interest in politics during his school days, which were spent in England following the separation of his parents. Eventually, Charles ended up at Magdalen College, Cambridge, but he was suspended after being in a brawl, and he chose to return to Ireland instead of seeking readmission. A fun fact about Charles is that he was extremely superstitious, and despite being Irish, he hated the color green. In 1874, Charles decided to pick up the family mantle and enter politics. 
He did so with a pro-home rule platform, and after a failed attempt in that year, was elected to the House of Commons for County Meath in 1875. Charles did not make an immediate splash. Indeed, he was originally considered not a very good speaker. Nevertheless, in part due to his family's history of political involvement, he was welcomed into the heart of the Home Rule contingent. Over the next five years, he became the new leader of the Home Rule Confederation of Great Britain, then the president of the Irish National Land League, a movement that aimed to help tenant farmers, and then, in 1880, he took over the Irish Parliamentary Party. As we said, 1880 was the year that William O'Shea became an MP on a home rule platform. So of course he wanted to get to know Charles. The only problem was that Charles was notorious for turning down invitations to socialize. William told Catherine of his desire to be the person who got Charles to come out to play, and because him doing well meant her doing well, it meant it became their shared objective. Eventually, Catherine got tired of Charles not accepting their invitations, so she collected her sister, and together they went down to the House of Commons to deliver their invitation in person. A no-doubt curious Charles came out to see her when summoned, and apparently Angel sang, because according to Catherine's later retelling of this meet-cute, despite him being a, quote, tall, gaunt figure, thin and deadly pale, end quote, he had, again, quote, curiously burning eyes. They made Catherine immediately think that he was both different and wonderful. Charles, too, was clearly intrigued because within months, he was calling Catherine my own love in his letters. She would later be also queenie and wifey, while he was king and husband. The deep love that Catherine and Charles developed for each other continued throughout the rest of the decade, and the Charles-Catherine-William triangle was anything but simple. Just as Charles was attempting to balance multiple interest groups in politics in order to reach his end goal of home rule for Ireland, he was also balancing an illicit private relationship with Catherine with a public professional one with William. And William was hardly a star associate. He regularly refused to toe the Parnellite line, which didn't endear him to anyone in Charles's camp. Regarding this balancing act, how much William knew about Charles and Catherine and when he knew it is still debated. Each of them had reasons for keeping it under wraps. Charles and Catherine might want to avoid scandal, Catherine would not want to raise the ire of Aunt Ben, and William could use the association for professional gain. But it seems, even if he didn't know from the start, William first gathered a hint that his wife was too friendly with Charles in 1881. At that time, he discovered a suitcase of Charles's in Catherine's possession. This discovery resulted in an argument with his wife and the challenging of Charles to a duel. Now, it's pretty heavy stuff, but the duel never occurred, and William's outward association with Charles continued. So either William was sufficiently convinced that there was no affair going on, or some other arrangement was made behind closed doors. In 1881, Catherine was also pregnant with Charles's child. Now, you might assume that this would complicate things, but it's possible that William thought the child was his. In a letter from Charles to Catherine, he implied that she gave the doctors the wrong date for her pregnancy on purpose, a move that would shield William from knowing that her child was Charles's. During all this, Charles was arrested and sent to Dublin's Kilmainham Jail, 
the same place that the leaders of the later 1916 Easter Rising would go, if you listen to our episode about that, due to his role in demonstration staged to force Parliament to give in to the demands of the tenant farmers. When February of 1882 came around, Catherine gave birth to their daughter, called Claude Sophie. Claude was after her friend, and Sophie was after Charles's sister. William behaved as a father because he most probably believed that he was. Poor little Claude, however, was not a healthy child, and she passed away that April, but not before meeting her biological father. Charles secured a brief leave from prison in order to attend the funeral of his nephew, and then went to the O'Shees on his way back to meet Claude Sophie before she passed. During this time, he also spent hours talking to William about ways he could get out of prison. William served as the go-between for him and British political bigwig William Gladstone. These negotiations, which did get Charles released, and were later denied by Gladstone, revolved around promises of cooperation between their parties and are often referred to as the Kilmainham Treaty in scholarship. Things get even murkier regarding the trio's relations in the years following Charles's release from prison. William continued to spend most of his time away from Catherine, while Charles basically lived with her. As a result, Catherine gave birth to two more of Charles's children, Claire in 1883 and Catherine in 1884. Regardless of whether he knew the truth at the time or not, which he probably did, William claimed both children as his own. By the mid-1880s, there were whispers among some political circles about Charles's friendship with Catherine O'Shea. William, whose reputation had not gotten any better, since he was seen as an annoying fame-seeker instead of a reliable colleague, and whose ambition was not actually aligned with his ability level, proved that he was not the best messenger for Charles in the long term, at least not if Charles wanted to actually accomplish anything. So, Charles began to have Catherine act as his go-between with Gladstone instead. She wrote multiple times to the British leader and even met with him on Charles's behalf. In 1885, William's tenure as MP for County Clare was coming to an end, and it was very clear that he would not get re-elected. The voters of Clare were largely unimpressed with him, not least of all because his uneven voting record showed that he was not the political Parnell follower they wanted him to be. If William was out of Parliament, though, he could be at home with his wife, the same wife who had gone so far as to build Charles his own study at her home. To stay in Parliament, William turned to Charles. He asked, or possibly blackmailed, Charles to get him to help. William didn't make himself an easy candidate to support, though. He refused to pledge himself to the Irish Parliamentary Party, which was what everyone else who represented the party did. He claimed he wanted to remain independent, but I'm pretty sure he also wanted to stick it to Charles. It made many people seriously side-eye Charles as he worked his backside off to get the politically unreliable William elected as an MP for Galway. And this was over more qualified and more loyal men. The move cost Charles respect of many of his peers, and it wasn't even worth it. William abstained from voting for a home rule bill that was proposed to the House of Commons instead of supporting it. It didn't pass. And he resigned from his hard-won seat. Throughout all of this, the papers occasionally carried notices about Charles's whereabouts since he was a public figure, and sometimes those notices were very clearly that he was with Catherine O'Shea, which only added fuel to the affair rumor fire. 
Then, when Charles's political enemies forged letters and had them published in the newspapers in order to tie him to a heinous crime committed a few years prior in Phoenix Park, William testified against Charles. He said that he believed the letters were legitimate. Charles was so on edge that he fervently believed William had done it, even though the real forger was eventually identified. So obviously things between them were not good by that point. But nothing truly exploded until December of 1889, when William filed for divorce from his wife Catherine, citing her affair with Charles. Their dirty laundry was out in public once and for all. Charles assured his colleagues that he believed he could weather the storm, and a slew of counter-accusations against William were submitted by the defendants. They said that William had his own affairs beginning well before Charles came around, including one with Catherine's own sister, and that when she was pregnant in 1881, he had physically assaulted her. Yet, eventually, Charles and Catherine changed tactics. When the case finally reached the courts in November of 1890, neither defendant was present, and no defense was made on their behalf. This means that William had full control. He painted a picture of himself as a trusting husband who was completely duped by scoundrels, even fabricating that Charles would sneak out of Catherine's window when he heard William was coming home, then walk in behind him as if he had just arrived. Unsurprisingly, William was granted his divorce. He was also granted custody of all five of Catherine's children. Yes, even the two that actually belonged to Charles. In order to prove he was duped, William had to claim paternity of Charles's daughters, regardless of what he knew. Still, neither Claire nor Catherine ever lived with him, and eventually the custody of Charles's two girls was given back to their mother. There are a lot of things to unpack here. Why did William choose December 1889 to seek the divorce? One possibility is that he was encouraged to do it by Parnell's political rivals, since he was friendly with some of them. Another is that he knew about everything, was fed up with it, and wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. After all, he wasn't an MP anymore and had exhausted Charles's usefulness to him. Plus, he surely hated how public the affair had become. Still another thing to consider is Aunt Ben. She had passed away recently, and any hope William had of an inheritance through her evaporated, because Aunt Ben left everything to Catherine independent of her husband. Although Aunt Ben's will would be contested by Catherine's siblings, as it stood immediately following her death, that font of financial help had run dry. Perhaps even, he was motivated by a combination of all of these things. In some ways, William seeking a divorce was not entirely a bad thing if you were Charles and Catherine. A divorce meant Catherine was now free to marry Charles, who certainly wanted to marry her. Catherine wanted to marry Charles too, but she did admit that she was worried that once she was free to marry, Charles wouldn't like her as much. He definitely assured her otherwise. Still, she claimed that Charles pushed for the divorce to go uncontested. After the case, politically, things went downhill for Charles. Initially, it appeared like he might squeak through. He was voted in to retain his position at the head of the Irish Parliamentary Party. However, once it came to light that Gladstone believed Parnell staying at the top of Irish politics would mean the death of the new home rule push they were planning, he was forced out. All the while, newspapers had a field day with the story of the divorce, with conversations swarming about whether or not the actions of a man in his private life 
should determine his suitability for public political service. With only William's account of events to use, none of the coverage made Charles or Catherine, now called Kitty among the sniping press, look very good. In this atmosphere, Charles continued in the political fray, but was unable to find success anywhere. The couple did have their joyous moment, though. In June of 1891, the divorce was finalized. Then, Catherine and Charles tied the knot in a civil ceremony in England after privately being together for over a decade. However, by October, Charles's health, which had always been fragile, had deteriorated rapidly. He passed away on October 6, 1891, at the age of 45, mere months after finally marrying Catherine. He was buried in Dublin, and despite the recent scandal, the funeral drew thousands of people. As for Charles's politics, home rule as he envisioned it never occurred, though a version of it came close right before the outbreak of World War I, which we discussed in our Easter Rising episodes. Ultimately, in the early 1920s, the southern portion of Ireland gained independence and became a republic, while the upper portion, Northern Ireland, chose to remain part of Great Britain. The division remains to this point in 2020. William faded from the spotlight after the divorce, though he did attempt to build a railway in South Africa, but as was typical, his plans never took off. He passed away in 1905. Catherine, too, was largely quiet following Charles's passing, emerging most significantly in 1914 when she published a two-volume memoir. That memoir, which was the source of the remembrances like the story about Aunt Ben that I told here, was created at the behest of her son, Gerard. He wanted to refute the claim of a recent article where a member of Charles's party during the time of his leadership stated that if the truth had been able to come out, the world would see that Charles was the victim in the affair and not the destroyer of a happy home. Because Gerard saw this as a direct insult to his father's memory and to his mother too. Catherine complied, and I highly suggest reading it if you get the chance, if only to think about how much say Gerard might have had over how his father was represented, and to note things like the fact that Catherine completely skips over the birth of her two later daughters by Charles, and whether or not William knew about their parentage at the time. Catherine passed away quietly on February 5th, 1921, and was buried in England almost 30 years after her short-time marriage to her long-time love. She had never once set foot in Ireland. Thank you for joining me for this adventure in scandalous history. As I said, I put pictures of Charles, Catherine, and William, as well as further reading suggestions on footnotinghistory.com, and you can always interact with us on Twitter at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Footnoting History. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.